Good day and thanks so much for joining us. I hope all is well with you. If not, we're going to get you right today because I am talking with Dr. Ebony online. We met on Instagram and she's got a lot of great things going on. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you so much. I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, so I understand you're a licensed psychologist, which is what initially grabbed my attention, but you're also a food relationship strategist. So we're going to talk about the correlation between food and, and wellness and, 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 you know, make it a big old cornucopia there. Yeah, I'm with it. Let's go. <laughs> All right. So, so, um, as it pertains to mental health, right. Um, we were chatting back and forth about this and you were discussing, uh, wellness from a mental standpoint, when it comes to men, black men specifically, why such a focus? Why are we centering black men when it comes to mental health? Well, historically, the field of mental health has excluded us. And, and when I'm talking to people about what I do and why the cards came about, one of the things I like to do is just to kind of provide some background information as to kind of where we are today as relates to uh, the field of mental health. Back in um, its inception, mental health was actually, as relates to Black people and other people of color, was actually created to help decriminalize us, was actually helped um, created to help us not go to prison or help our children not go to prison. It wasn't to heal us. It was just to help us basically not be the criminals that we were born to be, right? And so when we think about the ways that the field of mental health has criminalized Black and Brown folks, it is imperative that we center the people who are criminalized the most, which is Black men. Um, I also think as a Black woman, Black women are also, we carry our share of issues. But I think when it comes to Black men, Black men are left out of the healing conversation as a whole and are kind of left to be invincible and left to kind of still carry the burden of this criminalization with them. And so I wanted to create something that would censor their mental health and give them permission to take up space in a field that is oftentimes neglected and forgotten about them and oftentimes kind of written them off. You know, I love the fact that you're approaching it from that vantage point, but just from, you know, because of, you know, conversations I've had with other people regarding mental health, um, specifically as it pertains to black men, we are often expected to be void of emotion and that's sociopathic. There's nothing natural about that. And so once we strip ourselves of our own emotions, what do we have left? And in a sense, we're erasing part of what makes us who we are. Right, right. And, and I think historically, not having emotions or being stripped from your emotions has served as a survival tactic. Um, it served as a mechanism to survive and that worked for a time, but it doesn't work now and it hasn't worked for a very long time. And I think that when you strip away emotion or you kind of teach somebody to be emotionless, you teach them how to navigate through the hard times in ways that you need them to. So if we're thinking about the, the conditioning, the colonization, the slavery, the, in, you know, the enslavement, all of those things, then you strip a person of their humanity and you can kind of make them do what it is that you need them to do. And also we need to survive, so we block those off. And I'm a trauma expert. And so what we don't know also that component that's missing is trauma also kind of comes in and impacts you, the way that you experience, feel and express emotion because enslavement is traumatizing poverty is traumatizing being in families that have broken apart is traumatizing poverty is traumatizing all of these things are traumatizing so seeing other people killed with bodies like yours is traumatizing so when we talk about emotional expression we have to think about the impact of history as well as trauma 
on the body of the person that we're talking about sort of emotional numbness kind of within that context we got to understand how all those factors play together because it's not just that people don't want to express emotion we've been taught over time or have learned in our bodies over time that that, e that either wasn't safe or that we need to go about this another way so we have to relearn safety first and we have to first feel safe in order to experience emotion because emotional expression requires vulnerability and if you don't have that then are you really going to really express your emotion the answer is no and so are we you, need space are you really even to, living if you're not are you really living no and so we need space where people are able to to kind of feel safe and heal in order to then access their emotion now doctor when you talk about enslavement that sounds like something that is uh i don't know way back when, but when we talk about that, that's kind of where people's minds go. Like, oh, that's that's hundreds of years ago. That is not even remotely pertinent today, but I'm sure you would disagree with that because I even in today's workplace, not just black men, but let's just say black folks as a whole, as we are centering black people in this conversation mm -hmm. are having to try and sit with a blank stare because you don't want your face to uh, give off the wrong message. You really have to watch the tone that you take. So that is kind of a throwback to what you were just alluding to, is it not? Well, I think some people can can um, use the coping skill of distancing to kind of make sense of where they are now and to kind of uh, kind of give themselves the illusion that they're safe and that nothing applies to them. So to think of enslavement or slavery as something that happened mm -hmm. way back when, mm -hmm. I think is. I think is is a coping skill for some people. Like I need to get that distance. But if we think about the laws that impact yeah. us now, we're not far from it. I actually went last year to get my conceal and carry license, and there are laws that are still in the Constitution in the state of Texas that were written in in the 1800s that still apply today. So for people to say that oh that was a long time ago is actually them engaging in a bit of uh, probably cognitive dissonance or or just just kind of ignorance and so that they don't have to face or just and I would not even say ignorance on their part but just a lack of education by the systems that have taught us what what it means to kind of live within those times and how those times impact us now so I think on a larger scale our systems want to condition us and make us believe that that stuff is no longer um what relevant and it is because what what it does is when you distance yourself from it and say oh that was way back when it also decreases the accountability that they need to take around what happened and the impact that it still has and the the, the laws that need to be changed around it so we're not far removed from it and one thing that i want people to understand about trauma is that trauma is intergenerational and intragenerational it lives in your body so you have the dna of people who went through some horrible horrible things that's been passed along to you and you need to understand that in order to make sense of the things that you experience today you mean we can pass things along cellularly oh yeah mm -hmm. absolutely <laughs> absolutely you I gave mean, me the raised eyebrows on that one like oh yeah oh yeah absolutely so if you think about the body that you're housed in at conception and that you have to live in before you are birthed into this world you are getting everything that that body has to offer you and that is not just the nutrients that's also the emotional distress that's also the emotional kind of enjoyment you're getting all of that and if you're in a in a mother let's take a mother who's has experienced trauma or is struggling with anxiety or depression you're getting all of that and so in the psychology world we call that a predisposition so you are predisposed right and i know we hear that as it relates to substance use but it also impacts you on the mental health level as well there are some things that you can carry with you that 
have been has been passed down to you from your parents that will increase your risk or increase your likelihood of developing some emotional kind of responses or emotional mental health issues. Have you seen more black men uh, come forward and say, I need help as it pertains to issues of race and racism, and I am willing to take that step and I'm going to try something I've never tried before. Are you seeing more of that? Yes, now. I will say within the last year and a half, yes, now. Um, it hasn't been the case, but I think social media has done a great job. It's a blessing and a curse, social media. Well, I was going to say there's some positive in social media. Yeah it's, yeah, it's a blessing and a curse. It's made it more normal to say, uh, hey, it's okay for you not to be okay. And more male therapists are stepping to the forefront, more celebrities, um, people with influence are stepping um, up and saying, hey, I struggle with this. I just posted something earlier this week about Andre 3000 saying that he actually struggled with social anxiety. And we know Charlemagne the guy has actually had his issues. A lot of people are coming forward saying, hey, I struggle with this, this is okay. So I think the more normal we can make this thing and the more we see people talking about it that looks like us, it makes us wanna say, hey, I need that too. And you may not be ready to kind of put it on social media, but at least you can have that conversation with a loved one or a friend and begin to start the process of engaging in therapy or healing. So normalizing it obviously is, is you know, the basis of the statement you just made there. And you have kind of helped this along because you've got some cards in play. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you give me the backstory behind this, what it's called and, and how one can involve him or herself in, in using it? Yeah, so I created my therapy cards last year, actually, and they were released at the height of the pandemic. So in May of 2020, and I created the cards, honestly, they started with Black women and I created the cards out of a need um, to decrease access issues and decrease cost issues. So when I came to Austin, I was the only black woman psychologist practicing in the city at my credential level, at my level of credentialing. And I wanted to be able to work with people, but of course I don't take insurance, so I couldn't work with everybody. And due to our licensing laws, we can only practice within the state that we're licensed. So people would see me on social media and say, hey, I want you to be my therapist, I wanna work with you. And I was finding that I was having to tell more people no. And also people were like, I can't afford it, but I really wanna see you. So I took the questions that I asked my clients in session and I put them in the, the deck and I wanted people to feel like they were talking to a psychologist and doing real work and that went beyond work that went beyond kind of like your social media fluffy self-care and affirmations. I wanted people to really feel like they were digging in deep. And so I took those questions and I put them in the deck. And from the women, and of course, our, our Black women, I say this, my opinion, we're always going to take care of the Black men. And they were like, uh, Dr. Ebony, you need to do something for Black men. Uh, you need to create it. And so we did the teen deck first, and then we uh, released the male deck. Um, so there you have it. We have, That's how it came about, honestly, for me wanting people to feel like they can afford quality level work and care, and also being able to access it no matter where they lived. We're going to find a way, aren't we? Yes, we're going to create it. If it doesn't exist, we are going to create it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We are going to find, we find, a, we make a way out of nowhere. Oh, yeah, we're going to make it happen. <laughs> what, is, what is it called? What are the cards called? My therapy cards. They're called my therapy cards. And I wanted it to be as simple as saying mine, because I want us to take ownership that we belong in this space. For a long time, this is something that white people did. And no, this is something that we do. And it's my therapy cards. So in, in this whole entire project, in this entire creation, we are addressing stigma. So we're saying my therapy. I'm going to therapy. I'm going to do something and gain a tool that's going to help me. We're addressing um, cost. 
So these cards are only $49.97 and there's 42 cards in the deck, which is going to take you throughout a whole year if you do one card a week um, and take some time off to really sit with some things. Yeah, I might need to do a card, the same card twice. <laughs> yes, and you could do it for several, several situations. And then we're going to address accessibility because we all know that mental health care is not as accessible as we need it to be. Yes. Um, and so people can't get to quality providers like they need to. And so here you have all of this in this deck as um, kind of pushing towards helping those areas. That is amazing. Tell me this, um, Black men being misunderstood. Again, we are focusing on Black men in this particular conversation. I don't want anybody else to feel like I just disregarded <laughs> them. But as it pertains to Black men, there's a lot of instances in which we are, we are misunderstood. How do we advocate for ourselves? Because mm -hmm. that, that causes anxiety as well. You have to worry about the octave of your voice, your facial expression, as I alluded to just a moment ago, even one's own body language, when you really mean no harm, but then your voice may go up because you're like, I'm just, you're misunderstanding me. Everything is being misconstrued. I hear this a lot when I talk with my friends. It's very real. And it's a very complex question to answer. And I'm going to err on the side of, you can only do so much on an individual level and you've been made to believe that this is something that you need to correct and is actually something that needs to be corrected systemically. And we need to address it within the terms of racism, patriarchy, misogyny. We need to address classism, all of those, toxic masculinity, all of those things, because these are all the systems and uh, kind of concepts that create these illusions of who the Black man is all of this stuff. And so when we're kind of engaging all these systems, it's not for you to fix. It's almost like, so in my food relationship brain, right? It's almost like people telling you, you need to just stop being lazy, but not taking accountability for the food deserts, not taking accountability for the poverty, not taking accountability for the lack of resources and, and, and saying, this is all on you. We're going to wipe our hands clean of that when they're the ones who created the issue. So for the black man, there are some things that you can do to kind of help present yourself in a different way, begin to advocate for yourself through language, through healing, through support groups, through therapists kind of giving us the language to use to kind of say, hey, you may, you know, talking to organizations. So some of the things that many of us do is talk to organizations about how to view their employees and things that they're doing that kind of lies within kind of racism. But that's what you can do. But largely the issue resides with the systems that created the issue for the Black man in the first place. And I don't want to be a part of the problem saying, oh, it's all you and you need to fix it. Because then that's where feeling like a failure comes in. That's where feeling like you're hopeless comes in because you think that it's all about you and you can't get the traction that you want to see. You start yes. to think that it's something that you're not doing that's good enough and it's not all on you. This creates an identity crisis, does it not? Absolutely. Absolutely. Who am I? Is, is this a question that, that you find Black men are asking? Or maybe not in so many words, but they're like, Doc, I don't know who, who am I? Who am I? I am I born Yeah. <laughs> my identity. What is my identity? If I lose this part of myself, then who am I? And who do I blossom into? And then what does that mean for me? Because I got to look um, at myself so, in the mirror. Yeah, it's hard. It's complex. And so you'll find a lot of people saying, well, I'd rather just stay in what I know than to actually try to heal because that's going to be unfamiliar territory. And I don't quite know how to navigate that. Oh, you're preaching today, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me how, how all of this is connected to what we ingest, the food. What, how, how is this connected? Make it make sense, doctor. 
Yeah, so uh, as a trauma uh, expert, one of the things that I see my majority, the population that I work with is mainly women. And so if you know, if you've ever uh, sat down with, with a woman in your life or seen a group of women uh, kind of commune together, probably you probably can count on everybody's hands how many times you've heard them bring a weight in the conversation. We bond around um, self-deprecating talk around our weight. We don't take compliments. We are always, always trying to, to fix our bodies, always trying to fix our image. So when you uh, kind of add trauma to that, it compounds it. So a lot of the things that I was seeing in therapy is a lot of us really fixated and feeling worthless around how our bodies look. And yeah. so one of the things too, I'm a, I'm a huge um, sort of like, I'm, I'm a huge supporter of decolonization, speaking about the systems that need to be broken down, that kind of thing. So we can't talk about a food relationship without talking about the oppressive history of it. And so one of the things that I talk to my trauma survivors about that struggle with body image is let's talk about where this all started. So, and so diet culture is very anti-black and very rooted in white supremacy. It's like the thinner you can be, the closer to white you can be and the closer to good enough you can be. Because white so is the default is what we've we've been taught. Yes, it's what we've been taught. And you need to not eat those things that make you who you are because who you are is not good enough and you need to eat the foods that we approve. And so when you, you're working with a trauma survivor around gaining their voice back, gaining their empowerment, standing in who they are, part of that is recognizing that their bodies are good enough as they are. And part of that is also understanding that it's not your relationship with food or what you eat that's the problem, is what you've been taught about what you eat, what you've been taught about your body that's the problem. So a lot of the work is unlearning a lot of those messages that we've been taught and that's been passed down to us. As a person who grew up in Mississippi, I was passed down a lot of stuff about food and a lot of things around kind of like scarcity and poverty and kind of overeating and that kind of thing. I remember one thing that my, my mother told me is like, if you don't eat all your food, people in Africa are going to starve. And I was like, that yeah. don't make any sense, actually, because if I eat the food, they're still going to starve. So I don't really know what to do with this, but that stayed with me. It yeah. created a particular type of interaction with food for me. It created scarcity. It made me eat even if I wasn't full. So trauma comes in and also wipes away your ability to listen to yourself. I have trauma that wipes away my ability to listen to myself. And then I have a mother who told me, don't listen to your body, listen to what I tell you. So I don't know what to do in my wow. body, right? And so I'm just all over the place. And so how can I ever feel confident about my body if I'm confused about what I'm putting in my body or I'm confused about how I'm showing up in the world in this body? So all of it's connected in trying to heal the entire person. You didn't see it. I just slid the hot sauce out the frame. <laughs> I didn't want you. <laughs> so here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. Food relationship, building a healthy relationship with food is not about good, bad categorization. It's not about a weight. It's about unlearning the things that made you feel like your worth was connected to what you eat. Yeah. So it's a whole mindset shift. It's, you're, it's not connected to what you eat. Your body is fine just the way it is. There are some things we can always do to improve, but you're not worthless just because of a, a standard of beauty that somebody set. And so it's helping people move more away from diet culture and weight being connected to worthiness to more of empowerment and showing up with food in a way that makes them feel good regardless of how the body looks. Um, there's a word in your profession and there's a word that we need to normalize that needs to just be erased, right? From our vocabulary. And I, I, I'm sure you would agree that's crazy, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, what absolutely. does that mean? Because you talk about our culture, African-American culture. And I just hear that. I mean, your eyes can glaze over listening to a friend and you just, yeah, that's crazy. You know, it's yes, just like yes. a default, but that is a word that we, 
it's not helping your cause or our cause collectively. Well, I think context and intent matters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that sometimes we use it and we're like, man, that's crazy to explain because we have our own language. We have our own way of describing things. We use it to kind of describe something that's outlandish, but nobody's sitting around saying, man, that's outlandish or that's, that's, that's significant. We're not talking like that. We're kind of like learning to kind of like navigate with, with, with small words, slang, you know, we, we get to the point, we kind of move on. So we have this our own- back to the root of what you were talking about in terms of yes. coexisting in, in our environment. Yes. And so when we are using words, we're not literally meaning crazy, but now here's where it gets complicated. When we are talking about people's mental health and we're talking about people's emotional presentation and we are saying, oh girl, that's Uncle Joe, he crazy. And so the context matters. And I think that it really is going to be hard to dismiss and get rid of the word. I think we just need to be a little bit more careful of how often we use the word and pay attention to our intention and context around the word. Um, because people typically don't mean like, oh, that's crazy, meaning I get what you're saying, but I'm trying to explain it in a way that is not always harmful. But I get what you're saying. I just want to make sure our friends know. I get it. Yeah. I, 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 I asked you like that because I knew you were going to get me together. <laughs> <laughs> it has harmful consequences. So yeah. the less we use it, the less confusion we cause naturally. So that may be the route to go. But sometimes people are going to just say, well, that's the word that I chose to go to because that's just how I talk and that's my language. I um, mean, that's how I communicate with people. But I do think the less we use the word, the less harm we can do to those around us who may feel stigmatized by the word. We see a lot of athletes coming out now and they're often referred to as crazy, but they are just being straight up honest about the pressures they're facing. And people think that they see their salaries, which are very much public, um, and they say, well, there's no reason this person should be depressed. They just don't understand clearly what that means, or they should suffer anxiety. They're, they're shrinking in the moment, but this has to, in a way, make you happy to know that there are athletes out there who are willing to you know, share their struggle publicly so that somebody at home may see, you know, I'm not alone in this. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I do think that sometimes it's a lack of education on our part around what it means to have anxiety and what anxiety and depression looks like. Because for a long time, coming from where many of us have come from, especially me, only the people who struggled had these issues. And so what we were conditioned to believe is, oh, if you just get a job, everything is going to be okay. Or if you had enough money, everything would be okay. So when we see these athletes with those things that we, we were told would just make us okay, it doesn't make sense in our mind. Yeah. Why aren't they okay? And also that makes things a little bit more real and risky for us because what we tell ourselves too is, if I work hard enough, I'm going to be okay. So the thing then falls back on you. It's like, well, if they're not okay, then... I'm not going to be okay. And if they're struggling, then this promotion isn't going to make my life any better. So that leaves me hopeless. So what do I do? So sometimes we resort to the coping skill of dismissing it by saying, oh, that's crazy. They need, they don't have anything to be sad for because yeah. as long as we put it on them and say that it doesn't make sense or it's not real for them, it doesn't have to be real for us. How do we find someone to help us? We need to tailor our, 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 search for our therapist, do we not? The same way that a doctor must tailor our, our prescription in a pill bottle, right? We Absolutely. can't just go grab anybody and say, this is going to work. And I know for me personally, I'm thinking, 
I really want to speak to someone who is black because I don't want to have to waste my time or money trying to make something make sense to someone who may not understand where I'm coming from. Absolutely. And this is the part that is so frustrating about the field of mental health is that finding a great clinician and somebody you fit with is honestly like dating. And it's honestly like finding somebody on an online dating app. You have to go through all of these people. Sometimes it lands well and it fits well, but sometimes it doesn't. And so we have a number of efforts um, that are uh, in like directories that are tailored towards helping us find more people who look like us. And so those are great. And I can kind of provide you with those so you can provide it to the audience. But it is hard. And I tell people all the time to be patient with the process and it's going to take some time just because one therapist wasn't a good fit doesn't mean that somebody else is not going to be a good fit and just because you like their social media platform doesn't mean you're going to like them in an intimate setting like therapy and so it takes some time and it doesn't mean therapy doesn't work it just means y'all are not a good fit i like it i like it um doctor is there anything that you'd like to i know we're kind of you know encapsulating if you will a lot into a small window, but this is a lot of great information. We've talked about our appetites. We've talked about our appetite for feeling accepted as well. Um, We've talked about why it's so difficult to receive compliments. And we've talked about trauma, how that's the overarching umbrella to all this. Is there anything that I'm leaving out that, that you could put a bow on this with? I think that you've done a great job of kind of bringing in the whole thing. One thing that I would definitely say and some some tidbits I want to leave with audiences that therapy is for all of us. We have permission to take up space. It doesn't make you crazy or dysfunctional to go to therapy. Uh, therapy is, is actually something that you do to kind of keep up keeping. So I want people to normalize that idea and normalize that it, it doesn't make you weak to go seek help. The other thing that I want people to do, because typically when people hear these conversations, they're like ready and on fire. I would in, invite you to kind of have some grace, compassion, and patience with yourself to kind of endure the healing process because it does take time and it may not always unfold like you needed and wanted to. But if you keep at it and stay consistent, then it is going to do what it, you need to do. So grace, compassion, and patience is something that I always want to leave an audience with because we are very critical of ourselves and each other when things start to feel out of control around us and we want to kind of grasp hold of something solid, we'll go inward and start criticizing ourselves. And so what I want us to do is start to be a little bit more gentle and compassionate and patient with ourselves so that we know we're healing, other people are trying to heal, and we're out here really just doing the best we can. No doubt. Where can folks find you on Instagram? You can find me at Dr. Ebony online on Instagram, on Facebook, and I'm Dr. Ebony on LinkedIn too. And our cards one more time. Yes, you can go to mytherapycards.com or mytherapycards.shop. Thank you so much. You didn't know I was sneaking in a session. This is... (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And thank you all out there for listening. I hope this has been a blessing to you all and it helps you along your way. Until next time, y'all have a good one.